Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Uh, before we get into this awesome episode with Nathan Hudson and the uh, Next Generation Trumpet Competition, some really, really amazing stuff in here. I had no idea about this trumpet competition, and so I'm really uh, excited and proud to be able to share some of this information and what Nathan believes in. Before we get into that, I have three things to tell you. Number one, make sure you listen to the end of the episode past the outro to hear the secret message from our mastering engineer, Brandon Yoakum. Number two is we have officially hit 100,000 downloads. And this is not a number that I typically publish or talk about because I don't want to be like, look at all these whatevers. But truly, 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 I have to say I am so thankful to each and every one of you who listens, who enjoys the podcast. I hope you're getting things out of it. And to to have this number is kind of surreal, you know, like you start something like this and you just don't know like what it's going to turn into or what it's going to be. So to have this kind of support has been really amazing. And I'm going to do a raffle giveaway type thing. Not 100% sure exactly what it's going to look like. Uh, our sponsors, Houghton Horns, uh, they've offered to donate a, a jersey that says Mahler on the back, like a sports jersey that says Mahler on the back. It's pretty cool. I'll leave a link. Uh, or I'll just talk about this stuff on social media. So if you're not following me on social media, you can do that on Facebook and Instagram. And the other thing I'm thinking about doing is, uh, I'm not sure yet. Maybe some sort of like free lessons or something like that. I, I don't know yet, but stay tuned. Follow me on social media. That's where I'll probably announce those types of things. So uh, if you're not, make sure to do that. But thank you so much again for listening. It's just amazing to have so much support and a great community of people who uh, dig here my conversations with people. Uh, the third and final thing is I want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with them, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through the providing of the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. Have you ever set your trumpet on the ground and then picked up your phone and then you actually dropped your phone on your trumpet and dented it? Because I have. <laughs> when that happens, Houghton Horns is here for you. At Houghton Horns, they do their repair work in-house. So you know you're getting one of their skilled craftsmen doing the work to bring your instrument back to 100%. They also do customizations. So if you were looking to customize your instrument for your specific needs, look no further than Houghton Horns. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I am here with Nathan Hudson, who teaches music theory and oral skills at San Jose State in California and is the founder and the managing director of the Next Generation Trumpet Competition. I'm super excited. This is my first time meeting Nathan. These are always really fun podcast episodes to do because uh, I just get to 
uh, it's all new information for me. So I'm really excited to dig into the things that uh, kind of where you've been and also things that you find to be very important so that uh, not only can I get to know you, but hopefully my audience feels like they know you as well. So before we get started, I just want to take a second to thank you for being on my show and giving me some of your time today. Well, thank you, Ryan. It is an honor to be here with you today. Ah, well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Uh, we will uh, start as we normally do with the sort of the beginning, uh, how you got into music, what sparked that interest, and then try to just follow your educational path uh, to where you are now. Yeah. Um, so I am currently residing in Georgia, um, which of course sounds a bit strange because as you said, I am teaching at a college in California, but it's a pandemic and times are weird. But um, I was born and raised here in Georgia, in um, Alpharetta, Georgia, actually. So it's like 45 minutes north of Atlanta. And uh, I went to Milton High School. And um, around that time, I was playing trumpet and I thought that I was pretty good at it, but I got to go a bit earlier though to really get the whole picture. So back in elementary school, back before Georgia cut all early music education programs in terms of performance at that age level, which is sort of sad, but um, I wanted to play the trombone in fourth grade. And I was, I was, I was really hellbent on this because I had just gotten a Nintendo 64, right? And I thought that this was the coolest, like the illest gaming console. And I was playing Donkey Kong 64, which in retrospect was a very bad video game, but it had a character named Lanky Kong. And I thought he was just so cool. And he had like a special attack where he pulled out this trombone and like he played this like jam and all the enemies kind of went away. But um, I couldn't spell trombone. And uh, I really thought that I did. And on the sheet where they were asking what instrument I wanted to play, I wrote down trombone, but I was fully expecting, um, or, or, or sorry, I wrote down trumpet and um, I was fully expecting a trombone. And so I get to class on the next day and, you know, like they have all the instrument cases like in front of your chair that has your name. And I'm like holding this like huge trombone, you know, this like little, little, you know, little tiny trumpet mouthpiece. And I was like, where's the big trombone? mouthpiece like where's the slide they're like oh we wrote down trumpet and i was like no no this is entirely wrong um but anyway so i ended up playing the trumpet and um i mean it worked out okay is that seriously and how you start you you miss you wrote down trumpet thinking you were gonna get a trombone and you yeah. just were like okay i guess this is what i'm doing now yeah i was like really really upset um <laughs> and you know i mean who knows um it could have been my frustration that like allowed the trumpet embouchure to form a bit easier because i was kind of tight and kind of flustered so maybe i was able to make a good sound and they're like well you're stuck with that one kid like it works out that's amazing um, and so anyways um i go through middle school and i go through high school and um, I'm playing trumpet and I was studying at the time with a guy named Paul Puvi, who's actually still here um, in the Georgia area teaching. And when it came time to sort of make a choice about going, um, you know, into college, I was thinking, well, okay, you know, there are some other interests I have besides music, although my parents quickly uh, swatted those down and they were like, no, I feel like you should probably go to college for music. And so I was like, okay, okay, fine. And so I was kind of looking around, I got some schools and initially, I, I really wanted to go study composition because in high school, I was very fortunate to have an educator um, named Ryan Borger, who was our band director. And um, he was very supportive of, of, of all the writing I was doing. And any piece I would write, he would always have our wind ensemble play. And we had like a chamber concert every year and he let me write a brass quintet for that. And so I was kind of into this whole music writing thing, but I wanted to stay in state in Georgia because it was just a little bit cheaper. Um, but there wasn't really at 
um, um, at that time, a great composition program in Georgia for undergraduates. Uh, and now there are, which is amazing. But back then there wasn't really. And so um, I was looking around at colleges and I was like, well, okay, I guess, I guess I'll go for trumpet and then maybe I can go on to composing later. And then hopefully there's some kind of infrastructure at the college to you know, allow me to still write. So I ended up pursuing a bachelor's degree um, in trumpet performance down at Columbus State University, mm-hmm. uh, um, sort of on the edge of Georgia and Alabama, where I studied with a guy named Robert Murray. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, uh, I was also studying composition with our then department chair, Fred Cohen, which is actually sort of um, just kind of a hilarious story that he is now my department chair at San Jose. So he went from being my teacher and now he's my boss. Um, always got one level up on me, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty cool, though, that you have someone that I assume means a lot to you as someone that you get to work with. Yeah, no, it was, um, it's, um, it's been a real joy to um, to be involved with him for all these years. Yeah, cool. So during my time at Columbus, I was there majoring in trumpet performance. And um, it was a great studio. And it's um, it's a really great school. Um, it, if I'm being honest, the, uh, the kind of music that sort of uh, I was given in my lessons was not exactly the kind of music that I really wanted to sort of play. Because as a composer, I was always really interested in like contemporary stuff and, you know, uh, I do love Robert Murray and I have a lot of respect for him, but he was like, okay, let's do this big contemporary piece. Let's play the Vaclav Nelly Bell Golden Concerto, which was written, you know, like 60 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay. And so like I play this piece and I was like, uh, what is this? And so um, I kept writing. I mean, you know, he was a great teacher though. Much love out there to you, Dr. Murray. And um, so after I completed my studies in Georgia, I moved up to New York and I went to Stony Brook University where I completed my master's and my PhD in music composition. Um, all the while, I was still playing trumpet um, at Stony Brook. How they kind of have it set up there is that they only have three trumpet students normally at a time, uh, so roughly like an orchestral section. But if they ever need to do a piece that has four, um, I was the one who got called, which was a real honor because there were just some really great players who kind of came through there. And at the time, um, I was studying there with Kevin Cobb, although he, I think he is now leaving Stony Brook or, or something. I forget exactly, but I think he's like finishing up his doctor, his, um, or the current doctoral students there now. But, um, I did study with him a little bit, although I say study loosely because, you know, I was, I was composing primarily full time and I was doing a lot of other things. And so it was just nice to kind of keep up the chops with him and just to kind of run some sort of, you know, organizational things by him as, as someone who, um, who began a lot of projects himself. And so, uh, I completed my doctorate there, uh, in composition. And then I hung around New York a little bit. Um, and then I ended up moving back down here to Georgia where, uh, for, the first, I'd say, half a year after I finished, um, I was just doing a lot of marching band teaching and a lot of marching band writing and some private lessons. And then I got the job at San Jose, and that has been this past spring. And then, uh, of course, we had, you know, like a whole pandemic happen in the meantime, and here we are. Nice. That's great. I mean, what's interesting to me, I have a, a very good friend of mine who has a very similar story where he was, uh, he enjoyed percussion. Uh, he's actually the timpanist at Oklahoma City Philharmonic now, but uh, composition is clearly uh, his uh, his first love, you know? And so it's, it's just to see the level of time it takes, you know, especially for things like marching band shows, right? Like just takes so much time and 
to be able to do all of those things at the same time, I imagine, was quite the the task, right? To make sure you're on top of all the different things going on. So uh, I'm curious if you feel like that was your experience around this time when uh, when you were in school trying to get all get everything done and 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 all of that. Was that your experience, or did you find that you were able to uh, live sort of a quote balanced life? And you know, I mean, were you good at that? I'm just kind of curious what your experience was like because I know for a lot of people. It can feel overwhelming in school. Is like a hard place to find balance in your life. So I'm kind of curious for your perspective. Yeah. Um, I kind of had to tell myself that I had a balanced life or else, I, you know, it was it was going to all fall down like a Jenga tower. Um, it was, you know, it was... It was absolutely crazy, and I was I was in New York, which is like the hardest place to make it, and um, you know it was. So this kind of goes uh, a bit into sort of uh, something that I might get into later. But in New York, you know, it's just a really hard place to sort of make it in any part of the arts field, right? Because there just are so many amazing people there, and there's groups, and there's artists and composers, and you know, everyone just kind of comes through there like at least once or twice a year, and it can it can be really easy to feel like you're just an ant in this gigantic city and that you aren't really having an impact. And so what kind of helped me to really focus down was um, to take those projects like the marching band shows or to, or to really focus on these things happening in these, you know, other parts of the country and say, okay, I don't have to really make an impact in New York City because New York City, it doesn't really need me. You know, it's, um, it's probably happy I'm there sometimes, at least, you know, I like to think so, but all these, all these students around who, who, who I'm working with for marching band and these other projects, that really matters, you know, because for like a high school kid who's a marching band, that's probably their most influential ensemble they're in during their time in high school. It's like the first time they really felt like they had, a, you know, like, a, um, like an artist family. And, and of course, it helps to encourage music, hopefully, and like athletic building. And of course, there's team building and, and you know, community and, 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 and there's just all these really excellent things that can come from that. And so I had to really focus on those activities I was, I was engaging with outside of New York, um, just to kind of weigh it all, you know, it was, it was, it was sort of always a scale. Like I kind of had these things that were going on in New York that were kind of piling up and piling up, but it was always just little pieces. And then every now and then every year or so I would have these marching band projects, have these commissions, have these sort of other things going on that would help to balance that scale of what I was doing in New York, just to kind of keep my head straight. Because sure. you're right, it can be, it can be a pretty brutal balancing act. Yeah. Uh, what is your so? I totally agree with you that, and I think it's a good perspective to have that. Sometimes for me, I can get caught up in my world of symphonic orchestral playing and sort of the culture at school. Like we forget that we are a group of people who care very deeply, but there is a significant amount of people who enjoy playing in things like marching band or concert band in high school. And then they won't go on to do anything. And so that might be some of the highlights of their musical performing career. And so to expose them to, to be able to expose them to great music at that level might cultivate, might be some of the catalysts like you're talking about. As a result, I'm kind of curious what your either method or approaches for the kind of music that you're composing? Are you trying to compose music that you think is interesting? Are you trying to compose music that you think will be interesting to them? Are you trying to work in, you know, sometimes shows will work in classical music pieces or things like that to possibly do that. I'm kind of curious what your perspective or your approach is when doing uh, marching band shows 
with the con with the framework of this could be their most important or most memorable performing experiences of their life. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been really blessed to sort of have a team around me for each of these shows that, um, you know, I've gotten very close with, uh, there's, there's, there's a really great, um, we have a great drill designer named Noah Bellamy, who's done like a lot of drum core stuff who I kind of often collaborate with on the drill side of things. There's been a few people who've been writing percussion books. And so there's sort of a lot of positive input always coming in. But on my end, um, I've been very fortunate that most of the ensemble directors who I work with um, want to have a little bit of like the Hudson, you know, Hudson compositional charm in there. And so I'll give you like a really good example. So a few years ago, um, there was a band I, um, I was writing a show for down here and it was, uh, a show that was called Revolve and it was, um, trying to kind of take like a retrospective look at kind of like older pieces, but sort of modernize them. Like, and so in the show we had like the Agnus Day from the Bernstein mass and we had, um, uh, the opening Kyrie of the Bach mass in B minor. And as I was kind of beginning to work through these arrangements, um, it hit me. I was like, you know, what if we open the show with the Bach Mass and B minor Kyrie and we kept it in B minor? And, and when I first mentioned this, this director was like, you want a high school marching band to march something in B minor? I could like already hear like the alto saxophone is like quivering, like, no, 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 no. We're not going to do anything in B minor. But I was like, no, listen there's not a single high school band on the planet that's doing this and it's going to make a statement. It's going to be something that an audience hasn't heard, a judge hasn't heard. And along with that, I tried really hard to not adulterate what Bach had written because for almost all these students, it was their first time ever playing any music by Bach. And so that puts a lot of onus on me as the arranger to give them something that's going to help plant a positive seed in terms of that kind of music with, you know, how they're learning it, how it sounds, how they play all these different things. So it really matters. And so I was like, I want to keep it in B minor. I don't want to change it. I just want to orchestrate it. And so he was like, okay, well, let's try it. And so, you know, I arranged the thing. And of course, as expected on the first read, there were a couple notes that I didn't write, a couple colorations that, who knows, maybe had Bach lived for an extra extra 500 years, he would have been into it. But um, there were a few things. But on the second time through, I remember he got up there, you know, he cued in like the drum line. They had the big build and then uh, the band entered and hearing a marching band on a field play in B minor, it is huge. It's explosive. And after like they finished their last hit, all of us staff were just completely silent. We were just like, holy crap, that was crazy. And, and, and what was amazing is that it wasn't just us, the staff, that felt that way. You could tell that these students were like, something special happened there. We're not used to doing this. Because, you know, all the marching band music is in like E flat or it's in like B flat or something. And they were like, whoa, this was crazy. And so... Um, it really matters because uh, I do think that marching band um, needs to be an educational musical experience first that then helps to incorporate some really healthy things in terms of, you know, athleticism and like group building like I was talking about. But I think that it really does have to be sort of an innately musical activity first because it's going to, you know, oftentimes dictate uh, what happens inside of the classroom, like in their, you know, other ensembles or jazz band or things like that. So. Yeah, that's a good story to kind of answer your question. I that's think. a great story, actually. Yeah. There's a recording of it somewhere online. I'll try and find it for you. Yeah, I it's I mean, 
You know, I haven't thought about marching band since high school, right? I haven't been in marching band for a long time. And I interviewed Mike Martin on the podcast a while yeah. back, and he spoke about DCI and 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 his love for DCI and kind of converted me a little bit to <laughs> like this, there's something really special and magical. And hearing you speak about that, it's cool because it's possible for, you know, high schoolers who may not have decided this is the thing they want to spend their whole summer doing, right? So they're just seeing that there could be special moments and that you're sort of, you're taking it seriously, I suppose, to facilitate that and not just trying to be like, this is a thing, I'm just going to write it so they have something to play, but really thinking through like, what would be the right way to present this music? And also, it sounds like you're also then trying to put a little bit of faith in the ensemble, you know, something in B minor, that's C sharp minor for all of us B flat instruments, you know, and I think that's wicked. very cool. Yeah. I think it's really cool that you're, you know, you're willing to say, I have faith in you that you can, you can do this and it will be worth it on the other side. And I think that's a very, very awesome perspective. It's also just really, really refreshing, you know, like, especially from all of my time in New York where, you know, I, <sighs> I did have some really great opportunities up there, but a lot of it was sort of instigated by me. I kind of had to like make these things happen, which was fine. Like I love doing that as we'll get to here with the competition in a moment. But uh, to come back down south and to work with these high school students who love what they're doing so earnestly, even if they never touch their trumpet again after high school, but in that moment, they love it so much. It's honestly unbelievably inspiring and exciting and it's it's you know I want a few times every year like where I get to work with ensembles who honestly love what they're doing that much yeah that's awesome thank you for I mean <laughs> I did not anticipate getting in that direction but I'm really glad we did um plus on top of that sorry just like one side note like about drum corps I mean you know who doesn't want to hear like you know 84 like in tune trumpets just like playing like a major chord sure. right and then add like the fourth it's like oh it's wild yeah. it can be really exciting really visceral yeah absolutely maybe not 84 that's a lot of trumpets she <laughs> <laughs> uh, less than that all right so i want to make sure yeah we'll, we'll, let's just dive into this and see where the rest of the interview goes uh, so you are the founder and um, I wrote it down and then I crumpled up this piece of paper. What's the other <laughs> the other um, uh, title? Yeah, the managing director. Managing director of the Next Generation Comp Trumpet Competition. So I'm at your website right now. I'm just going to read what this is, what it says, what is NGTC. And then I would love for you just to talk about where the idea came from, how you got into it, um, what it was like to build it, and and what you hope for it, all that kind of stuff. It says here, the Next Generation Trumpet Competition is a new virtual music contest for trumpet featuring new works from established composers. The three rounds are adjudicated by a panel of leading trumpet artists joined by the composers themselves. Leading up to the competition, we will host four virtual masterclasses led by our artists for the participants. These masterclasses will cover the music, entrepreneurship, collaboration, trumpet playing, and so much more. Participants will be given a PDF of all 15 etudes as well as access to a private Facebook group where they can pose questions and dialogue with our artists. In the weeks leading up to the competition, our trumpet artists will record video premieres of the new works. These videos will be available here on our website as well as shared on social media. NG 
TC began as an opportunity to engage the next generation of performers with not only other young trumpet players, but with our roster of artists amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. Since then, we have developed a strong community of musicians dedicated to cultivating a diverse and forward-thinking ethos. And probably the most important thing that you are going to write in the whole thing, we are more than a competition. I'm really glad that you wrote that in there. I want, I want you to explain all of it. The floor is yours. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's that's a great thing about like having somebody read that because I can write a lot better than I can speak sometimes. <laughs> um, so back when uh, the pandemic sort of um, had just kind of like completely crippled the world, I was just looking around and um, even though I hadn't really been actively engaging with the trumpet community a whole lot, I still have a lot of colleagues and friends who um, are pretty deeply rooted in that scene. And I began to see some posts about okay, well, ITG is going to cancel their competitions and TC is going to cancel their competitions. And it kind of just like threw me back to when I was an undergraduate. And I did those things. And I thought, you know, those were some really good experiences. But looking back on it, um, there's a couple things that, you know, I wish I could sort of add into that experience. And because they are not happening right now, is there something I can do about it? And so I began to brainstorm and I was thinking, well, being a composer for so long and being in New York, there were a lot of exciting composers who I was working with frequently who had a compositional voice that was a lot different than most of sort of um, what the mainstream new music for trumpet has kind of become. Now, I'm not going to mention any names of you know of those composers because I think they're doing some really good stuff and it's all equally important slices of the pie. But you know, a lot of the composers now who... Um, are considered like contemporary composers for trumpet, especially in this country. It's, it's you know, a bit different like in Europe. But um, especially here, they all sort of write the same for the trumpet. And so I thought, okay, what if I were to call up a few of these people who I've met and I have built some stuff with in New York and um, I ran some ideas by them. And so uh, I began talking with a few of them, just sort of like, hey, you know, like, what's your interest in writing some new music for trumpet? Like, you know, just kind of, you know, I put out some feelers and then I was like, okay, so these composers are mostly interested. Let me go reach out to a few um, of my trumpet friends, which I hadn't really done a whole lot of that since I left undergraduate. Um, somehow in my composition career, I use trumpet often in like large ensemble works and things like that, but I didn't really explore it much as a solo instrument. And so I didn't have a reason to engage with them a lot after I left undergraduate. And so I sent a bunch of emails and I was just like, hey, um, happy to reconnect. I like have this idea that I'm kind of forming in my mind that involves new music and trumpet. Like I can't pay you anything right now, but like, I think it's a good idea. Like if you have any interest, just let me know, you know, like, and we'll start talking about it. And, um, maybe it was a, it was, it was a good thing. I think it was a good thing, but everyone got back and was like, yes. And I was like, oh, okay. Well now I've got to think faster. <laughs> and, um, I had all these trumpet players who were just like hungry to do something, right? Because at that point, all of us, you know, had had lost stuff. And I tried to kind of mainly target trumpet artists and composers who I knew had other lines of income because I was not going to try to ask them like to work for free if like I knew that they, you know, weren't having any other income going on. And honestly, it is entirely because of their generosity and belief in the first edition that we're able to even have our second one now and we're able to pay our artists fairly now. But um, I wrote to all these people and they were like, yes, yes, yes. And so I was like, okay. So I began to think about how this thing would be built. And I began to sort of use ITG and NTC as a mold with 
which then I put a bunch of cracks in to sort of fill it with a putty like that I thought was a bit more interesting, at least to me, um, just to kind of represent like a different slice of what's happening. And so I thought, well, what if I had a competition where all of the competition music was entirely new, entirely written by this team of composers, um, but not just written by these composers, written by composers in collaboration with these trumpet artists. And on top of that, what if the music was not just like a new solo piece or or whatever? What if it was intentionally structured as an etude or something that's slightly pedagogically tinted? That way, all of the collaborative artists who are creating these works, I can use them themselves. Any of our participants who are involved and who are playing these in the competition, they can use it themselves in their future teaching or whatever. And so I thought, okay, that's that's not a bad idea. But I don't want to just have a competition because I don't want to take like the collaborative aspect of what we're doing with my initial team of composers and trumpet players and then, you know, have them write something and then have have, you know, young people play it and have it just be like about a, you know, no, 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 I didn't want to do that. I thought, what else could I create to sort of reimagine the competition model? Now, there are a few things that I had to have to sort of be a competition that was going to be relevant. I had to have some kind of a prize pool. And so, and so I decided on like a monetary amount that that would be. And I was going to initially have that be funded by the registration fees of participants to enter. And that was one of the first things I was like, okay, how can I begin to change the model of competitions? And I was looking at the NTC fee and looking at the ITG fees and they're high. They're high fees and you play old music and that's fine. But I was like, what if I have a low fee and it's new music? And so I thought, let me charge $35, $35. And what this $35 will get you is access into three competitive rounds. And in each round, um, there are five possible pieces, which um, I should specify, we have 15 new etudes in total on our first edition uh, I had five composers and I had 15 trumpet artists and each composer wrote three etudes and they worked with three trumpet artists. It got changed going forward because that was a lot of people. And so for <laughs> our second one, we just have five trumpet artists um, and five composers. But anyway, so each of our rounds has uh, five possible pieces, one that is a required etude and then a participant um, I gets to choose two of the other four. Uh, and it was actually pretty amazing after our first edition, um, all 15 ended up being represented by at least one participant, which was pretty cool. That was, that was exciting. Um, but along with that, I wanted to sort of use the competition as a front for community building. And so then I was like, okay, what if we have these master classes kind of leading up to the competition, you know, um, on the few weeks before where I get together kind of like various, uh, um, you know, smaller subsets of my artists and I kind of have them talk about things either related to the etudes themselves or about their particular um, story or journey or their career or whatever it was. And so we had these virtual master classes and it was just unbelievably exciting and humbling and encouraging to hear these artists just sort of talk about what they do with other young people all over Zoom because we were all stuck at home. And I should, I should also say that we are an international competition, which is why the age range um, is 19 to 25 because I don't want to sort of, you know, exclude anybody internationally by saying like, oh, undergrad through master's because it's different all across the world. Sure. And so um, anyways, we 
had these virtual sessions. And then on top of that, um, I had sort of like a private Facebook group where anybody was, you know, able to post questions about the etudes. And then we had the composers answer and we had some of the artists answer. And then, um, and then we also had the artists, um, each record like a premiere video of these etudes and those got shared on our social media and on our site. And so all the participants sort of had something like to initially model, you know, everything they're doing off of if they wanted to. Um, and it was just this amazing event and this, and, and this absolutely stunning kind of um, a coming together of a community that was not just like artist as adjudicator, student as competitor, but as, you know, we're just all getting together, like to build a family that is focused on collaboration and trying to build something that wasn't there before, not just sort of like use old bricks and make, you know, like an old Lego house. I wanted like to make a new Lego house and have everybody add a brick on top. So um, that was sort of the, um, uh, the first kind of um, impulse for sort of how we came to be. Okay, I'm trying to synthesize. Um, yeah, it's a lot. Sorry. <laughs> so this was born out of what you saw as a need. Well, mm-hmm. maybe not necessarily a need. Obviously, the need was that the competitions are getting canceled. But you saw it was born out of not just a need, but also that you saw that you could try to create something that you basically wish existed, which is, I think, the genesis of really great ideas in general, right? Um, so... Do you have an idea after you've even seen it one time and then you're formulating, you know, more? Do you have any idea of where you would want it to go from here? Are you happy with the model? Do you can you already sort of like foresee like where you want to go next? Like for me, sometimes that that's how an idea it, it can be hard to sometimes live, especially with a new idea. It can be hard to live in like where we are now stage because there's just so many possibilities of what something could be. So I'm kind of curious if you feel like you've struck something that you feel like is is the sustainable idea or if you feel like there's even ideas that you just need more repetitions and adding on um, sort of more repetitions of the competition so you can keep adding on more and more stuff. Does that question make sense? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question because in the time of this pandemic, as I'm sure you're aware, a lot of things sort of sparked up. And there were a lot of cool, you know, other projects, organizations all kind of started during this time. And I wanted to make sure that NGTC was not just, um, you know, acting as um, a temporary Band-Aid on this time. And that it was it was something that really could be self-sustaining going forward. Um, because I think it matters. And, and, and as you said, it's something that I do wish existed. And now it does. And so I want to find a way to keep... Um, to keep feeding it and to have it be sustainable going forward. Now, a few things um, got altered from our first edition into our upcoming second one. Um, the first being that I called ourselves an international competition on our first one, and I did a very poor job on my end of getting an international roster of artists. And by that, I mean I didn't have any. Uh, now, that happened like initially just out of, you know, who I thought would be available, but I could have done more. And so for our, for um, our second one, I thought, okay, I got to do better about that. I've got to do better about sort of representing all the diversity that makes our feel great in our artist pool. And so I really tried to make that a focus. And we have a pretty outstanding rock star team for this second one. And we're trying to begin to branch internationally. Um, I don't know like a lot of, you know, um, of the international trumpet community or in the music community. And so I, 
um, I'm getting to know them and it's amazing, but um, it's going to be maybe like a few more years until we can have a really strong contingency from all around the world. But um, that's something that I wanted to change. Now, I've been talking with um, uh, the others who are sort of on the core team, which at this point, I do want to say that it is not just me that runs in GTC. So I had the idea. And um, once I had that idea, I contacted my buddy, Victor Boyda, who uh, he used to play trumpet in the Okinawa Marine Band. Um, He uh, has since left the Marine Corps, and now he's back in Kansas City doing a lot of graphic design. And so he does all of our branding uh, for NGTC, all of our logos, all of our visuals. And then um, we also have Chloe Swindler, who is a doctoral student at UCLA, who's doing all of our social media and our marketing management. So it's not just me. Um, We are a team. And um, we were talking a little bit about, okay, so hopefully soon, once the pandemic um, is at a manageable place, do we stay online or do we try and have something in person? And ultimately, we decided that in order to try to have it be as equitable as possible to our field, having it online is just a really good way to go. Because if we have it be in person, then we're going to be basically forcing anybody international having to pay a significant amount for like a plane ticket. Um, Anybody, you know, who might have any kind of financial barrier, it's going to only get worse that way. And it just seemed like an easier way to engage more of our community. Um, And so we are going to be keeping it online, uh, at least for now, although we have talked about uh, perhaps um, in maybe four or five years, we are able to fly in like the finalists, like to do some sort of like a live concert and masterclass for like a community or something like that. But that's sort of, uh, a few years down the pipeline. So I um, I do think that it's something that I want to keep sustaining. In terms of having it change drastically, um, I like the setup for it. And I, I like the fact that we use etudes and that they are shorter. I like that they're all unaccompanied. Um, I just want to grow our international presence and I want to grow our sustainability, not only in terms of the money that we're bringing in from participants registering, but also being sure that we are paying all of our artists fairly and that we are able to hopefully in the future lower the entrance fee as low as possible, even hopefully getting rid of it by getting some kind of grant support so that we can honestly just say, if you want to be a part of our community, come please enjoy this new music dialogue with our artists and let's, you know, let's grow this thing and let's try to flip that script together. Uh, yeah. Beautiful. Um, you've, you've, you've spoken to this in the answers that you've given, but I would, I, I think for the sake of clarity, I think this would be a good question to answer. There's a number of ways I can ask it. It could be just like, who is this for? Right. Uh, but the fact that the, the the way I'd rather ask it is like if you were sort of speaking to me as somebody who was interested in your in interested in obviously I'm 32 right so <laughs> I'm aged out but if you're speaking to me as somebody who is interested in this kind of thing but wasn't sure I would be curious to hear from you especially the one with the idea originally what what do you foresee in the most idealistic uh, possible sense that I would walk away with? Like what value will I walk away with after having gone through? Because you're saying it's more than a competition, right? I pointed that out as I read it. And you're talking about all these guests, artists, and you're talking about trying to build a community. So for this, for like sort of clarity of what it is that you're doing, uh, I would be very curious, like what you would say to me uh, as someone who could be interested, like what, like what you believe that I would be, I would be walking away with from this experience. 
Sure. Yeah. So um, the most important thing is that I think for a lot of kind of young trumpet artists, which that is sort of our, you know, our target age range. So I, so like, you know, here in the States, it'll be like a sophomore in college up through masters, right? That's kind of like our age range that we're targeting. And of course, internationally, it's, you know, a lot different, but for a lot of those young people, um, they have a trumpet teacher who is giving them music and hopefully is encouraging them to be um, actively collaborative inside of their school of music or, you know, a working with composers or, you know, um, trying to seek other opportunities to play besides what's happening in, in the walls of the school. Because I think that in terms of education, students need to be encouraged to not look inside of the square walls of university. They need to go into that university or a place of study to be encouraged to think outside of those walls with how can I take what I've done here inside the classroom and make it actionable in my community. And so what we are sort of showing and we're trying to cultivate with our participants is, hey, we got some trumpet artists and some composers together who have never met each other, who are actively collaborating to work on something that you can use to teach and to use as a seed for collaboration for yourself. You just have to be able to say and be willing to say, hey, I want to think outside of these walls. And through NGTC, a lot of our participants have been able to say, oh, I can do that. I can, I can send emails to other, other students at you know, other schools or I can post in these groups and I can try to collaborate like and not just show off my chops like, oh, you know, listen to me play Clark 2 really fast. But hey, I'm like interested in having some kind of new music thing. I was a part of this like NGTC and there were these new etudes and composers like, is there a composer who wants to work with me? And trying to instill in them this kind of sense that if we want our garden to grow, we have to constantly be planting new seeds, right? If we just keep relying on the same crop, eventually it's going to die out. And we have to be supporting all parts of our industry, whether it's playing or composing or theorizing or being a musicologist or being an audio engineer. All of these people have to be sort of equally involved in the web in order for us to all grow as a community. Because one thing that was just really honestly, really sort of shocking was a lot of our participants who came from some really good institutions had never been told that that's okay. And they, you know, had never been told that that's how they need to think because schools and teachers are often so focused on like, you have to be here. You have to represent this place inside of these walls and do it well. That doesn't really matter, right? Like, like no one really cares how good you sound in your high school orchestra or like if you win your concerto contest. What matters is how are you going to leave that place? Or even as you're there, how are you going to take what you've done and kind of take this skill set and do something in your community, in our community, and really make something from that. And so NGTC is just a way to hopefully just flip on the green light for someone to say, this is healthy. This is what needs to happen. This is a thing that works as we can exhibit. And through our dialogue with the artists, we're not these like big artists above you. Like we're all just colleagues. Yes, these two people who I'm putting in front of you as artists on our side um, were chosen because of like their certain place in their career. But you're honestly only like 
six years younger than them, seven years younger than them. And now we're colleagues. Now you're a part of the NGTC family. And honestly, after our first edition, it's been crazy. So many of our participants are just actively dialoguing with past artists and they've done collaborations or they've met up together internationally even. And it's been really, really amazing. Um, so that's what I would say to that. Plus, on top of that, for $35, you get 15 new etudes, which I don't know where you're going to find a book of 15 new etudes written by the composers who we have for $15. It's just pretty ludicrous. But anyways. <laughs> yeah, this is great. No, I'm so thankful to know this information. And, you know, I think, and I'm kind of curious just for your thoughts on this, what, what, what it can sometimes feel like is things in the world are established. Like we have ITG and we have NTC and every four years we have Elzer Smith and then there's some comp trumpet competitions, you know, in other countries and stuff like that. And it can feel like those are the trumpet competitions we have available to us. And I just very much applaud that you, you weren't, you recognize that what they what that is is awesome. Like there's no reason to say that that's not a good thing. Absolutely. But you're also totally recognizing that there's room to take the idea and adapt it into something that doesn't exist. And the, to me, this is like where innovation ex starts. Is we sort of see well, like there's a bunch of things that exist, but like could we slightly tweak something to to fit a mold that. I would like to see exist. And I'm kind of curious, um, did you deal with any any of that kind of mindset of like, well, these trumpet competitions already exist. Did you feel like it was going to be hard for people to care about your competition because these ones already existed? What was it like opening it up for the first time and like the response? Was it immediate or did it take people to kind of figure out what was going on? Because for me, that's kind of in some ways where I'm at in my own career is like starting to just slowly share the things that I care very deeply about. And um, as sort of expected, but more than, but like more than expected, it's just slow. It just takes time to get people to understand what it is you're doing and what you're trying to do. So I'm kind of curious what your perspective is on that. Yeah, it was honestly really brutal because, <laughs> you know, um, I was sort of coming back to the world of trumpet as like, a composer, new music curator, that kind of thing. And um, the trumpet community hadn't really heard my name in a while. You know, some people like had done a few of my pieces at things like, you know, NTC or like ITG, like some fanfares or whatever, or like a new music concert. But I wasn't really like a name that people like were thinking of. And so it was honestly really tough because... Um, I was um, I was kind of joking with our, our um, other graphic designer, Victor. I was like, look, I feel like we're like the B side of trumpet competitions. Like we're like the indie side of this because I'm like a composer and I'm trying to say like, hey, trumpet players, this is important for you to think about. Like when they already have kind of like a set of like, you know, new music trumpet composers like in this country who they want to work with. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. But like you got to flip to that B side like to get to us, like to see, you know, as you were saying, how we can kind of view the same thing, but from like a different angle with like a few tweaks. And it was honestly, um, it would not have been possible without the support of of, of the artists on our first edition, um, who were who were just honestly really willing, like, to lay out completely and say, like, hey, hey, trumpet world, hey, new music world, this is worth you all taking, you know. Uh, some time to read about because it's cool and exciting because I couldn't do that on my own because I wasn't engaged in that. Um, I tried to post like, uh, I think it was like one thing, like when I first had the idea in like some trumpet groups and it met with like actual crickets, even on the kind of groups where like you post something and you can kind of go check on Facebook, you know, how many folks see it. Um, somehow like only like three people saw it 
in this. So I, I don't know. Anyways, I was like, okay, this is not working out. I got to get to my artists. And they were just absolutely outstanding champions of this idea. And so without them um, helping to get people to think about us, it wouldn't have happened. And it's honestly been really great because since then now I get emails from faculty asking me to come in like and speak to their studio about what we are and about new music and why it matters and our competition. So I did want to really quickly just kind of shout out all the artists because- Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, without them- um, it would not have happened. So for our first edition, it's a long list, and I apologize about this. But for, for it, our first for edition, it's a oh yeah, hour and a, we have forty minutes to our normal stop time. So that's yeah, right, that's right. So for um, our first edition, we uh, had Kate Amrine, we had John Armstrong, we had Lucas Balslav, we had Peter Bond, we had Sean Branham, we had Stephen Cunningham, we had Brandon Dix, we had Gareth Flowers, we had Jillian Huff, we had Garrett Klein, we had Andy Kozar, we had Doug Lindsay, we had Stephen McLean, and we had Robert Murray, and we had Chris Scanlon, and we had Kate Umble Smucker as our trumpet artists. And then for the comp artists, we had um, we had myself, and then we had Kevin Day, and we had Howie Kenty, and we had Mark Mellitz, and Sheila Silver, and Roger Zare. So that was our like huge team for the first time, which as you can tell, it's a lot of people. So we sort of downsized for our second yeah, one. Yeah. And so for the upcoming one, which I'm just so thrilled about, and you can read more about each of these artists on our website. For the upcoming one, for um, our trumpet artists, we have Jonas Vik, who is currently in Copenhagen, and he's teaching and playing there. And we have Rachel Semayoya, who's at UNT and is in Serif Brass. And we have Andy Kozar, who is up at the Laundry School of Music and is in Load Bang. And we have Courtney Jones, who's down at Florida Atlantic University teaching. Um, and then we have Stephen Cunningham, who's currently at Grambling State teaching some trumpet and some band. And then for the composers, we have Viet Kuang. Uh, and we have Jim David, and we have Kevin Day, and we have Molly Joyce, and we have Liza Sobel. And then on top of that, we also have an Alexander Technique and Mindfulness artist who um, um, is going to be coming back to join us, and that's Stephen McLean, and he is currently an inaugural fellow at the Leibovitz Foundation in New York for those things. So that is our team for this upcoming year. Um, and so head to our website, and you can read more about each of them. Um, I wanted just to speak one more thing about what you were saying about how we can take something that's kind of pre-existing and then kind of, you know, a break it down or dismantle it or view it from like a different angle. I kind of view it honestly a lot like a trumpet, right? So um, for all of you audio listeners, I'm currently holding my trumpet uh, in a very inappropriate way, doing unspeakable things, but that's not important. So <laughs> it's for I, my eyes only. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I have this trumpet and, um, if, if, if I think about how it's built, we're told to often keep all these slides in right now, of course, some people like to pull out like your tuning slide and do like some lead pipe, you know, like, like vibrating and buzzing and things like that. But it's sort of always as like a warm up technique or like a, you know, like focus your ear in the chops. But what if you were to pull out, I don't know, the first valve slide and said, okay, well, I don't really want to use this as a warm-up technique. I want to actually make some music by changing something. I don't want to be locked into this trumpet. And then you can make something that sounds like this. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this kind of approach of like, okay, how can I take something and actually break it apart but make something new. And I kind of got that idea from my buddy Gleb Kanasevich, who's a composer and a clarinet player based in New York, who uh, he wrote um, 
his PhD dissertation on how to teach the clarinet through making noise first and not through actually playing the clarinet. And I, th- and I think that it's just like a really beautiful approach to education. And at NGTC, um, all the etudes that were written for us, uh, it covers a wide array of styles. And we had composers who were exploring these kinds of things on the trumpet, and we have a lot more of them for our second one. As a spoiler, as I said, it does get wild for for, for this upcoming one. But we're just trying to encourage all of our, all of you know our participants and the artists, honestly, to think outside the trumpet, right? Like 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 this is not a constant, you know. This is. This is this is a tool like for us to do something with. And so we try to really kind of encourage that. And so um, I just wanted to speak on that a bit because you mentioned it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if I'm not incorrect, there's a piece by Stanley Friedman called Solace where you play one of the movements without the second valve slide. Yeah. And then so you do this like sort of call and echoes type vibe where what you when you press down the second valve uh, it does like the echo type thing and it kind of sounds like an echo and and like an interesting way though instead of the trumpet just being softer it sounds like a yeah like you're talking about yeah. a different sound it's a very cool it's a very cool vibe and one thing that i you know one thing i find very interesting i don't play a lot of unaccompanied trumpet music but one of the things that i find interesting about unaccompanied trumpet music is that you're forced to to do more with what's there because it's the same instrument the whole time. So you kind of basically, I mean, in terms of over-exaggeration of what it is, right? So instead of it being like you have a piano part, you have all these instruments around you and you're just filling in a color, you're just, you're making possibly all of these wide, a wide variety of sounds and colors and with articulation and obviously including mutes. And now we're talking about like removing slides. I just find that to be such an, uh, a valuable uh, aspect of in, uh, of including that into a person's musical development because it really teaches us in many ways to go for it and to really absolutely you know what I mean. And I wouldn't even you know have to be like uh, you know having a slide gone or something, but just you know approaching contemporary music not as like a blip in the system, but as like an equally important, if not more important, part of you know of the reflection of art in our time, you know um, because. If I'm being honest, a lot of people who I've talked to who are college educators don't want their students to play music like this, right? They don't see a benefit and they actively discourage it. A lot of band directors don't encourage it, orchestra conductors, all of these things. And that's just not a really healthy approach to education, I think, right? All this stuff needs to be treated as equally as viable and artistic expression as, you know, actually playing your trumpet regularly or whatever it is, you know? All right. So I'm going to play devil's advocate. Are you ready? Yeah, lay it on me. I played a lot of bad contemporary music in orchestra. I played a lot of bad old music in orchestra. And by bad, I don't mean like, I mean sort of like it's not written well, right? Like they write, Mm -hmm. it's like you're trying to push the limitations of what an instrument is capable of doing. And it sort of turns into, and, and it's possible that this is the intent, but it turns into sort of like a cacophony of sound, right? And I'm not saying that that's, a bad is the wrong word, and I, I I feel that I'm trying to. It's not even about whether I connect with it or not. It just feels like it's there's no guiding light, so to speak, right? Like to me, like let's use something classical like Beethoven. That there's gonna have like these rhythmic things, like these motifs that hold everything together, right? We have Mahler, like or a lot of times it's melody and stuff. But when you start stretching the limits with, um 
contemporary music, you lose sometimes things like melody or the like rhythmic, like things that hold it together. And that might be the point, right? You're sort of just like letting it be in space and time. But I feel like it's not often executed in a, a way that makes it an enjoyable experience, I suppose is the easiest sure. way to say that. No, no. Yeah. So um, I got a few things uh, to kind of answer that, or at least sort of offer like a different perspective Absolutely. on it. Absolutely. Yeah, please. Um, let's kind of draw some parallels with like visual art. Okay. If you were to look at the very early works of like Rothko or of Monet or Picasso, you know, they had to explore their craft and they had to sort of learn how to revolutionize the art form. So they had patrons and they had people who were supporting them saying, you need to make those mistakes because you have to learn how to revolutionize this in order to push it forward. If they did not have that kind of support, they would, you know, their output would not have been um, as groundbreaking as it was. And so I think that while, yes, there are absolutely pieces that seem like a bit misguided or like, oh, it's just kind of noisy, they have to have a chance to explore, much like a young trumpet player has to have time to make some weird sounds. A young composer has to have time to explore those things. An old composer has to have time to do those things. An old trumpet player has to also have those times. So I think we sort of have to still be watering it and supporting because if we don't and they're not allowed like to make those mistakes to see something new that hasn't kind of been considered canon before, it can be hard to break ground on those things. Um, also, a lot of it sort of goes back to like the early approaches to education for all of music, right? So I like to really cite the Suzuki method as like a big thumbs down um, in terms of like exhibit A of the problem, I think, right? Because like Suzuki method likes to teach young string players that their hands need to go on the strings to help facilitate playing major scales. Okay. And they're sort of taught like to think about the violin in terms of major scales. And that's fine, but it's potentially extremely unhealthy when that student grows up and you then introduce what's happening in contemporary music as that other. Like, oh, yeah, we have to break what you were doing and sort of how you've been taught to play this other music. What if there was an early, you know, early music education method that said, okay, this is one way to do it, but almost like my buddy Gleb's approach, what if we just approached it from noise? and sound first. And then sort of alongside that, we were also then developing things that were more standard like scales or hand positions. Um, and one last thought is in terms of Beethoven, uh, so I had a really great teacher um, all during my doctorate named Daria Simigan. She is an electronic composer. Um, she was a founder of the Columbia Princeton EA Music Studio and she worked a lot with Ble with, um, eh, with Bulent Orell and uh, I'll never forget. We had a class after the um, the orchestra played Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and we are in electronic music class. And she's like, "Okay, how'd y'all like the concert last night?" And of course, like, "Yeah, it's a great concert. You know, it's 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 a great piece. It has all this like development and structure and motive and melody, all that you were saying." And she was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." But like, why is that piece good? What makes that piece great? And then we're like, well, you know, he like has this motive and he develops it. There's like books written on it. And she's like, no, no, that's not what makes Beethoven great. What makes Beethoven great is that he is dedicated to in every second of a piece that he writes, only composing good sounds. 
No, her language was a lot more colorful than that. But she's like, every sound he's committed to making is good and great. And so, yes, we hear development. But what if he was thinking about this in terms of how can I go from good to a different shade of good and into great? So it was this really kind of like eye-opening. I was like, whoa, that's a really weird way to like approach analysis of something by Beethoven, like in terms of like the actual sonic experience, not just what's on the page. And I think that that sort of applies itself into what's happening in new music as well, because a lot of people who are, are you know, are coming from a tradition where they are expecting something like that, those sounds are foreign to them. But if you were to isolate those sounds, they're really not that different than Beethoven. And so we have to think about, okay, how am I viewing this? How can I engage with this? What can I take from my early education, acknowledge as a success or maybe a failure and try to incorporate this to grow myself as a performer, as an educator, as a teacher, as an artist, and then ultimately teach others to then hopefully start this earlier than I did to hopefully grow the whole garden a bit more. At least that's my perspective. Yeah, I think it's a great perspective. That You gave three points. I'm going to speak to the third one because I think there's just more material, but to, you know, I have no, so to speak to the first one, I have no problem with, with people experimenting. I have no problem with people getting their thing. I've, we've experienced in my orchestra though, that we keep programming. We were sort of dedicated to programming new music and we would get feedback from the audience and stuff like that, that they don't want to hear that, you know? And so when you're sort of beholden to people who like pay tickets, I imagine how you frame this kind of contemporary music is just as important as programming it. Like, what is the purpose for us doing that and stuff like that? But I mean, you know, there is that element, at least in the way that I perceive what's happening, sure. right? You know what I mean? It's a little bit less open-ended. The um, I don't remember the second point because I was thinking so much about the third point. Um, anyway, the third point, it's interesting because I find it would be very difficult to learn how to play an instrument with, like... A lot of what I perceive to the contemporary music to be is a lack of structure and more about the sonic world that you're in at the time. It's sort of speaking to what you were just describing, right? Like it's not about like we have, you know, the the antecedent and consequent or we have the, you know, the, I can't even remember these terms, the, the <laughs> exposition and the development and the recap where we recognize music. Like you could make an argument for like because we hear music that we've heard before, like that could be good or whatever. But I would just say that I to me – contemporary music it seems to be more about creating an atmosphere in many ways you're in like you're moving from one and you're moving from one atmosphere to another atmosphere that's not nearly as defined by rules and regulations as music that's old is but i would find learning an instrument to be somewhat necessary to have some of that some of those that structure and i i think many teachers do i i learned trumpet from an early age based on what sound are you trying to create, you know? Like, I'm, yeah. I'm sort of trying to reconcile that with some things I'm working through in my own playing, but it starts with like, well, what sound do we want to create and then what physically needs to happen to create that sound? And I actually try to teach that same way. Like, we need to move, like, there may be some va um, value in thinking about it you know, especially if you're struggling, like if you're an instrumentalist struggling with something, you may have to think about some of the components and get things in the right order. But ultimately, you want to transition as quickly as possible into creating the sound you hear in your head. So you turn into, I'm creating this thing, 
right? So that would be sort of, a, I guess, like an argument I would have for why we would start with some amount of structure, like something like major scales gives our fingers a place to go. As yeah, I think they have to be equal parts in the education, you know? Like, I think that, like, you're not supposed to do one or the other. Um, and, you know, I don't, I, I mean, I don't exactly have an answer because because um, no one's done one yet uh, that I think works really well. But I feel like if you can just introduce that structure, like you're mentioning, along with um, trying to instill uh, a deep um, um, a respect and a curiosity for the other, in terms of how they produce sound on their instrument, I think ultimately that that might yield a really interesting young artist in the future. But there there hasn't been a method, at least that I know, that um, has done it yet. But I do like, you know, I think um, I think you're right that it sort of has to be a balance. But Sure. So, but how to you, and, and I'm just trying to make sure I understand, um, how does that, how does it differ f- to you what you're describing versus I'm going to have someone play an A major scale, but I'm going to ask them to do it with a really strident sound. And then I'm going to ask them to do it with a lovely sound, then ask them to do it with sort of like a fluffy type sound. Like we're still exploring different sound worlds or concepts, but we aren't, we haven't necessarily said it is an other. We've just combined it into the thing. Do you feel like that what you're describing differs from that idea in a, in a way? Because what I what I feel like, what I'm hearing a little bit, and I want to make sure that I don't hear this wrong because I don't want to misrepresent you, obviously. It almost feels like if we ch- if we just approach like the Suzuki style and we have these major scales and stuff, it can turn almost into that this is almost just more about playing major scales and sort of this like putting it in a box and like we're playing with this X sound that's like typical classical something as opposed to, just to use an example from before, even something as simple as removing a slide from your trumpet, right? Now, all of a sudden, we're dealing with like a different sound world. And of course, you couldn't necessarily move your slide with playing something like major scales. But do you view those as having to be separate things? Or can you have someone through the structure of what they're doing, just ask them to conceptualize, especially as they technically develop? Do you think that might be a way that people could try to do it as, as early as possible, begin to ask them to conceptualize what different emotions or to conceptualize what different sort of adjectives of sound would sound like within that structure. Do you think that that would sort of fit some of what you're describing or is it something else? No, I think you're spot on. And um, I look forward to your first book coming out next year. <laughs> no, I think you're exactly right. You know, I mean, like, I mean, these things are are not meant to be separate. Um, and and I think what you were um, proposing is is a really elegant solution. Yeah, it's like that. You've seen that video of Jacob Collier, right? Where he like plays all the different Danny Boy, but all the different increasingly oh, yeah. more complex. You know, it's an interesting aspect of what he has available to him that I don't is harmony, right? Like he has harmony to help tell stories with a piano that I don't have as a as a single note instrument, and I find that it's that difference to be so interesting because we just lack range, you know, and and we need other instruments. Like you're talking about, we need collaboration to be able to tell effective stories. And I'm not saying it's almost interesting too then to develop sort of from, from an etude standpoint, right? Because you're talking about the value, not just being musical, but from like a studious point of view, almost recognizing that yes, the trumpet has tons of capabilities and we can explore sounds, but in terms of telling like full stories, unless you're willing to go to other sound worlds to do it, it's very difficult um, as opposed to when you could just play a major or a minor chord and all of a sudden you have two, you know what I'm saying? That's a very simplistic way of talking about it, but that's, it's sort of an interesting connection I made. Then when you talk about using etudes, 
as the vehicle through which you're trying to provide value for your um, your competition. Yeah, I think you're just like absolutely spot on there. And um, I'm drawn to thinking about the work of an artist, uh, um, the Honorable Elizabeth A. Baker, who is currently in Florida, but um, is moving up to do a fellowship at Harvard. Um, all of their output is just these beautiful graphic scores. And, and they have a whole series about um, educational works for piano. And it's just all these graphic scores. And it's it's, you know, encouraging these young students on piano, like really, really little to say, okay, once you have worked on your C position or your G position or your scales, how can we take something like you see in front of you, like, uh, you know, um, like a piece of painted wood? And how can you use that as your tool to then make something other than what's in your book, but that's equally important in that moment, especially because you chose to make it? So, yeah, I think you're spot on. Yeah. Again, it's a slight devil's advocate, slight. I just, I have found that I'm not, I can't prove this yet, but this is a question I'm trying to answer in my own practice and in the practice of my clients and stuff. Like, I, I have a strong feeling that technical mastery begets the ability to explore sound worlds. Like, you can explore sound worlds, but when you have the technical mastery of um, Jacob Collier, for instance, like it's endless, you know? And I'm not saying that it's not at all worth it to, I, I think I think we're actually saying the same thing that I'm thinking about. It's just, we need both of those sides. We need the technical side. And you hear this conversation all the time. I just appreciate your perspective, which is like, let's just try not to limit the musical approach to you know, our sort of romantic period, classical period, whatever, but start to think about in terms of what is our instrument really capable of? And do I even know like what sounds that I would have access to? And am I willing to just like either experiment on my own or, you know, talk to some composers who might be already in that space and see if we can come up with something that could be engaging through the use of exploiting whatever that sort of sound different thing is. And what, I mean, this is almost, sorry, this is almost always, this is almost always manifest in using way too many mutes for the trumpet for me. <laughs> like, or making up mutes like, hey, you gotta go to Home Depot, aisle seven, there's a certain flower <laughs> pot. But if yeah, you get yeah. the terracotta one, you're not playing my piece. Yeah, no yeah. way. Has to be the clay one. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I, I played a piece once at Tanglewood where it was really interesting. They had us blow through the instrument and then like, and then push down the valve. So you were mm -hmm. making like a, but like people that were more than 10 feet in the audience, like <laughs> they just could, you know what I mean? So some of it, I think context of the, of where it was, I think this is true in all of music, but the context with which it was composed, I think is very important to keep in mind sure. as well. But I think it's an interesting conversation, not one that I have very often. So I'm glad that we've had this opportunity to kind of dig in because it, it it does get my brain thinking and, and, and it's not a perspective that I really enter into a lot. I sort of have my biases based on what I've experienced. And it's really nice to hear from someone who's so passionate to get me rethinking uh, about a subject like this. No, for sure, Ryan. You know, I mean, and if you if you didn't have those biases, like then nothing matters to you. And so, like, I think that that's like absolutely healthy, you know. And um, I mean, like, I might have sounded like I was putting a lot of the onus on 
on the instrumental teacher, but it's 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 sort of equal, if not more, on composers who are creating music for those young people. Like if you look at composers who um, you know, are some of like the big hot names right now, they often have works for young band, young orchestra, and they completely change how they write music. And Maybe that's fine because they're trying to like account for those kind of technical things you were mentioning, but there just has to be a way to still have their voice be heard when you have, you know, less available to you in that regard, which I feel like a lot of composers just kind of um, accept that they're going to forfeit if they're writing for that age level. And I think it's a shame, but hopefully (laughs) there can be some positive change soon. And like I said, I look forward to your book coming out in a year. I will buy a copy. (laughs) Well, one thing I want to Let's say... Let's collaborate on it, actually. Let's do it. <laughs> one thing I want to say before we uh, before we close here is, you know, probably the most inspiring and sort of the part that I admire about what you've done is that you just created the thing that was like, I have this need. I want to be able to have new music. I want to be able to create a community. I want to be able to have, you know, great representation and diversity from our trumpet community and a composer's community. Like you're just doing the thing. You're creating these opportunities for not only yourself, but the people in the community for the artists. And it's incredibly admirable to me. And I hope that people, I hope that many people are inspired by what you've done. And I hope that people find ways to create things that they think matter and to be able to do it in ways that they think will impact other people's lives. I hope people follow in your footsteps. It's amazing. Yeah, me too. And you know, I, um, um, I appreciate that. Um, it means a lot coming from you. And, um, you know, I want to say that, uh, in kind of closing, what, what sort of sparked this was, um, okay. I got to give you like a bit of a backstory here. So in New York, as I was finishing up my doctorate in my last couple of years, I was getting really bummed out like really bummed out because yes, I had marching band gigs. I had a couple of commissions around. I was, you know, like doing a little bit of playing. I was doing some curation, but I wasn't making it, well, in quotes, making it in New York. I didn't have pieces played at National Sawdust. I didn't, you know, have like, you know, the International Contemporary Ensemble, you know, like commissioning a piece of mine and like playing it at like all these venues. It wasn't happening. And I was getting really discouraged because I had colleagues who did have that. And I, I, I began to think, okay, you know, something, something isn't working in my approach here. And also um, um, at the time I was working um, in coffee and um, I'm still really uh, um, into that coffee world. And maybe on our second podcast, I will talk about like specialty coffee because that's a whole nother thing. But I was working <laughs> okay. in coffee because, you know, because New York is expensive and um, I just kind of hit this wall and I was getting just like really, really depressed with my art. And, um, and in that scale I mentioned was like beginning to balance in like a negative way. And I had a really fateful dinner with, um, my doctoral advisor and his name is Dan Weymouth. And, um, he gave me probably the single best piece of advice I have ever been, I've been given. And it kind of laid the groundwork for NGTC, other projects I do, is I went to him and I said, Dan, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. You know, I'm going to have the degree, but it's not working. Like I'm, you know, like I'm trying and like I'm not getting the commissions. I'm not getting the kind of reviews, the prestige. Like I have some stuff, but like it's not going to, it's not going to hang here. You know, like, you know, am I cut out for this? And Dan was like, Nathan, I got to tell you something. 
I could care less about what commissions you have, where your music is performed. What I care about is that you promise me the following, that you'll take whatever hypothetical ideal uh, that you think you need in your life as an end goal, whether it's like a full-time college job or, you know, six huge commissions over three years or having pieces done at, you know, like whatever venue, take this, this, you know, hypothetical ideal and distill it down into what actually makes it an attractive prospect for work. Do you want to teach at a college, um, because you, you know, um, are told that you need to, or, or you want to like do whatever, or is it because that you want to be an actionable catalyst in a student's life uh, to make change outside of those walls? And you want to try to break down some kind of like, you know, old, you know, old aesthetic that's like ultimately unhealthy. Is that why? Or uh, do you want to have, have those big commissions because you want the money or, because you just crave that active collaborative process and you want somebody listening to a concert to share in that with you, you know, whatever it is. And, and after you kind of have these boxes made and you kind of have like these sort of like big picture ideas down, I don't care what you do when you leave here. I don't care where you teach or like who plays your music. As long as whatever you do, check some of those boxes. If you're doing that, then I know what you're doing is good work and that it matters. And it was the single most important piece of advice because as I was looking at my career at that point, you know, in coffee, I was checking those boxes. You know, I was like able to make these moments with and for people like by pouring latte art, you know, like I was the first person they were seeing that day in marching band. I was having those sensations and, you know, all of my commissions happening in like other parts of the world or the country, other, other things I was doing. I was, I was still checking these boxes. And once the pandemic hit, a lot of opportunities to have those boxes checked sort of went poof. And so I was like, okay, I could sit around or... I could grab a whiteboard and I could make my own boxes. And so that's how we got to NGTC. And um, it was just like some really good advice. Nathan, this has been very awesome. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a blast to be on here. Yeah. Um, I've enjoyed this conversation very much. Um, it's very good to get to meet you a little bit. Um, we already covered the trouble competition, social media and website stuff. But for you personally, if there are uh, ways that people could get in touch with you personally or if, if it's just through those channels as well, that's fine. But uh, if you don't mind sharing some of those places that people can find you, uh, I'm sure people would love to know. Yeah, yeah. So, um, of course, you know, on all the NGTC platforms, if you send any message through there, it'll come to me. But I do have my own website, which is NathanHudsonMusic.com. You can also find me on Instagram at N-A-T-I Natty, like the beer, unfortunately. N-A-T-I underscore HUD, H-U-D 325. You can tell I made that back when I was in high school. Um, and that <laughs> is for... <laughs> And uh, that's on Instagram. Um, I don't have like a Twitter or anything, but um, I do also have a SoundCloud with my name. Just, just uh, yeah, you can find it on there for Nathan Hudson. And um, 
on YouTube as well, uh, um, at Nathan Hudson. And then along with the competition, there's a couple other projects. I have a contemporary music festival called the Forge and Flourish Contemporary Music Festival based here in Georgia. Um, I'm the executive director of this organization called the Flauto de Mori Project, which is making like some new music for this new old flute. That's a whole thing, but um, also on there as well. So all kind of ways you can get a hold of me. Yeah, that's great, man. Thank you so much. Um, if anybody who's listening needs to get in touch with me, you can do that on that's not spit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode or had any feelings at all whatsoever, I'd appreciate it if you left a rating and review on iTunes, and that would be super great. Also, don't forget to share this on social media so other people can find the episode as well. Nathan, thank you so much for being on my show. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you for a little bit. Ryan, thank you. It was super rad. <laughs> Uh, I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. Hello, 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 that's not spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. Have you ever had something shrink in the laundry? Me too. And for the longest time, I thought that there was no possibility of getting it back. But today I learned the most fantastic news. You can unshrink a laundered item. Start with a bucket of warm water, add one cup of hair conditioner, mix well, and add the shrunk item to the bucket for about 15 minutes. And soon enough, you will have your beloved item of clothing back without all the shrinkage. And remember, shh, don't tell Ryan. <laughs> <laughs>